There was a record net migration loss of 44,700 New Zealand citizens in the September 2023 year. StatsNZ estimates this net migration loss is made up of 26,400 migrants arriving into New Zealand and 71,200 New Zealand citizens leaving the country. StatsNZ says the migration departures of New Zealand citizens are just under record levels and just over half of the departures went to Australia. Mm. The previous record net migration loss of New Zealand citizens was back in 2012 when 44,400 New Zealanders left. Infometrics principal economist Brad Olson joins us. Kia ora, Brad. Kia ora. Are you surprised by this number of New Zealanders leaving? Not in a sense. We've been hearing a lot about this uh, over the last couple of months. And I think part of this conversation about departing New Zealanders has almost been obscured by the very high levels of net inward migration from other parts of the world to New Zealand. We've been talking about that a lot more. But certainly travelling around the country, talking to provincial areas, I've been hearing a lot about that loss of particularly young talent. Some of them are going over uh, to the likes of Europe and, and, and the United Kingdom for an OE. Uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of people on Instagram at the moment uh, sort of flaunting their, their travels. But actually, as you've highlighted, a lot of those are actually going to Australia. That's probably a slightly more permanent move. Uh, but it does worry me in a sense uh, that not only are we seeing these high levels of losses, but we're seeing them from across the country. And again, that means that some provincial areas are struggling to find talent. And you've also seen a connection with the sharp rise in rents, particularly in Auckland. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. At the same time as you've seen these very high levels of New Zealand departures, you've of course seen record levels of inward migration. Uh, Over the last 12 months, you've had uh, 210,000 more people come into the country from overseas. And of course, what that's done is most of them, around half of them, have gone into Auckland. Uh, That's a whole additional level of demand. All of those people need somewhere to live. Uh, Not necessarily a huge change in supply and how many houses there are, And so we've seen that rental growth has really accelerated. Uh, At the end of last year, you saw that rental inflation in Auckland was around 0% per annum, comes through to the latest figures, and it's accelerated to 8.5% per annum. So a big pickup, people paying more because you're seeing more people looking uh, compared to houses available. Ian, is this something we need to be concerned about? I think so, although we also have to be a bit cautious as well and not being too premature. I don't think you can be too premature. You're either premature or not. But anyway, um, look, part of it can be um, a delayed reaction to the opening of the borders in the context of the pandemic. Uh, I I can see why New Zealand's reputation as a much safer place to be in in terms of the pandemic would would encourage people to come to New Zealand. Um, uh, But on the other way, it takes a bit of time. And and the way Omicron's been quite rampant in some parts, in many parts of the world, including Europe, uh, at least you know last year, uh, on a greater scale than New Zealand, so that could probably lead, contribute to a delayed reaction that's having a cumulative effect now. The other observation would be, uh, and it is potentially more serious, is in terms of going to Australia. I don't think people go to Australia in the main for OE. I think they go for employment or maybe mm. retirement, uh, and uh, that's a thing to be worried about. 
And if you look at the health sector, we are bleeding to Australia in different ways, uh, uh, particularly in respect to medical specialists. Many of our medical students actually go transfer to a uh, medical school in Australia because there's greater capacity and better job opportunities. So there, there are things there that we ought to be uh, particularly concerned about. It's a question of why people are going, and I think Australia does pose a particular challenge or threat. What are you hearing, Claire? Oh, I'm experiencing the exact same thing. I mean, on, on one hand, I've got nieces and nephews that are scarpering left, right and centre to go on their OEs, and I totally understand that. But also what I'm seeing firsthand as a school leader, and I actually had a meeting with um, a group of other principals this morning, is we're starting to see that real talent flight across to the likes of Queensland where they're offered better pay. My, my question is, do we need to take a really hard look at how we're remunerating in those fields that are getting sucked out of, you know, like our nurses, our doctors, our specialists, our teachers, um, our police force are all getting drawn across um, to Australia because it's, uh, you know, better salaries, better conditions and what have you. Is, is it time for us to take a really hard look at how we might um, attract people back. I have an answer to to that, and that's yes. Yes. Mm. Absolutely agree. And the the other point to add into there is because at the moment we're seeing not only very high levels of departures of Kiwis from here off overseas and including to Australia, we're also seeing very low levels of arrivals back into the country of Kiwis who are already overseas. So we're obviously not uh, seemingly putting out the most convincing argument to Kiwis overseas to come home. And I think all of that is part of it. We know that we often use uh, lose young people to overseas. They go and get some experience. Often they are making a bit of money. But at the moment, I'm not convinced we have a strong enough argument for why people should come back. We've got to have that. Otherwise, again, we're going to continue to lose our talent without any real ability to bring them back in. Pay and, and other conditions have got to be part of that conversation. I can't help feeling that we're really lucky that Luxon is so good at acquisitions. Here's a chance for us to flex his muscles in that and, space. And Tate, Brad, I've got a question for you from a texter. Texter asks, Brad, how many of the New Zealand citizens who have gone to Australia are actually newish New Zealand immigrants? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't have that one off the top of my head. I'm not sure if I could have the data immediately to hand. Uh, but they would, for them to be counted uh, in the categories I'm talking about, they would have to be uh, people who are New Zealand citizens. So they would have had to have got sort of citizenship. Uh, and that means that not only would they have to be citizens, but they also couldn't be people that, say, came in for a few months and then jetted off to Australia. They've got to have been here for a certain amount of time first to be counted. So don't have a complete number for you, but um, we're, I'm not expecting there would be huge numbers of people sort of coming in, staying for a few months and then jetting off again. My, my sense in the education space is it's the experienced educators who are taking up opportunities. Yeah, and we've just had a text um, just picking up on that, Claire. I'm not sure if they're in education, but they're saying, hi, we're moving to Queensland in January because of six years of bad government, family of four, two working adults. Mm. Can, I, can I just comment on that earlier point that... Uh, in respect of doctors at least, uh, there is a, a lot of doctors who come to New Zealand from overseas. Actually, I can't remember the figures now, but a high proportion do leave within a decade. Mm. Um, often not so much to Australia, but to from whence they came. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, came here with the intention of staying. So there is actually quite a churn of at least in the, in the medical profession at least, uh, of those that come here with the intention of staying. I want to give you the finishing, finishing comment, Brad. 
I think just to, to that point, one of the things that we do need to get better with not only is, again, stopping as many leaving and, and attracting more back in, but understanding a bit more about who they are. We don't track a lot of that information very well. Uh, and so a lot of the time we don't know what skills we're losing and we don't know exactly what countries they go off to. We know about Australia a bit more in the last couple of years, but again, I sort of worry that we're flying blind at the moment. And if that's the case, it's going to be a struggle to bring more and more people back in. So we've got to close that gap. Thank you, Brad. We need more information. Brad Olson, Principal Economist with Infometrics. It is coming up to 17 minutes to five. And in all of my excitement and probably a little bit of TMI embarrassment, I forgot to mention the name of that power ballad and Dee has got in touch to ask. It was Run To You, Whitney Houston, (laughs) released in 1992. The number of women in community rugby, players, referees and coaches is on the rise in New Zealand. The sport has seen a staggering <coughs> 20%, how's that for a number, rise in females playing in rugby in the past 12 months. However, junior male playing numbers continue to decline. New Zealand rugby has today confirmed 147,434 players for the 2023 season, an increase of 7% with women and girls participation to 29,448. I know, numbers. Yeah, rugby's identified as our national sport. It has been that since 1892. Alice Soap has been playing women's rugby in teams since the age of 13 as a, and as a staunch advocate for getting women over the advantage line. I love that line. Tēnā Alice. Kia ora, how are we doing? Kia ora. Well, this increase in great news. We're doing well, aren't we? Well, look, I am going to tamper these numbers a wee bit. Get right? in there. Um, because the 20% is half of what New Zealand rugby told us to expect in March when they were projecting a 40% increase this year. So they've missed their own target by half. So that's not too flash from then. And I'd also say there is a a big ground to be making up um, on our pre-COVID numbers. So pre-COVID, we were sitting at 32,657 registered players based on New Zealand rugby's players, that's women and girls. So we're actually still not quite hitting where we were pre-COVID. So we're still in recovery, and that's the story there. Um, And, yeah, still in decline for our men, I'm afraid. So, okay, well, let's get back to this recovery now that I'm not as excited as I was. (laughs) What's needed? What's needed, Alice? Oh, yeah, sorry, I know I took the wind right out the sail. No, no, but let's get real. We've got to get real, right, because this is where you come into it. Yeah, I know, I know. I hate being the person that, you know, unfortunately pays attention to these um, numbers. But we love you being that person (laughs) just to get in there. Look, I think the um, the interesting thing is, I guess, the makeup and where these numbers are coming from. So, one of the, the two stats that they did include, like pre-COVID numbers on on their press release this week, were around club numbers, right? So, junior club girls and senior women playing club rugby; those have both increased based on our twenty nineteen numbers, which then suggests that it's that meet in the middle, our high school girls, where we've had a drop off. And I think that probably is something that we still need to be identifying. I can tell you as as the bio said, I've been playing this game a long time, 21 years, to age myself. Um, and so when I was playing at school, there were more uh, girls at that time, it seems, in, uh, included. We were playing 15 side stuff. Here in my region now, there's a lot of 10 side stuff. There's a lot less um, 15 teams that are going on. So I think there's probably some work that needs to be done in that space um, and, and incre- increasing our school girl, um 
schoolgirls playing. There's some overall things though that rugby probably needs to sharpen its tools on and I think probably that's where we're seeing um, the men's and the boys' numbers slipping behind which is because for a long time we have held uh, the the place in male identity uh, as as the sport of default for a number of people. Uh, We haven't necessarily been as sharp on recruitment and, and definitely haven't been paying enough attention to you know feedback from parents and things around safety so there are all of these things that are in the mix mm. um, and both the two trajectories I guess are at different points of the life cycle <laughs> in terms of growth. One of, one of the things I keep thinking about is the impact that the discussions around concussion and the potential long-term harm like have you think do you think that's having an impact on the number of young people taking it up I know post-COVID there's a lot of other factors. Yeah I mean look I think that you'd, you'd have to be silly to think it doesn't play mm. some sort of impact, right? But what I would say is that's probably one of the good news stories that rugby union has, say, over other contact sports. I think it's one that, uh, look, people will write many letters to the editor complaining about our tackle height laws and the people that may or may not be given a red card during a men's World Cup final as a result of those laws, but the basis behind them is addressing just that mm. and trying to make the game safer and acknowledging that we can do things to reduce concussion and that's changing the way that we coach. I coach my local club team here in Wellington, making up all the stats myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so look, you know, we change the way that we coach. There are different um, techniques and research that's come out of World Rugby, for example, in the last year about how I specifically train women and girls to fall differently um, based on that research. So I think they're doing some good stuff in that space, but I just think they just need to be get a bit more real that there are plenty of sports out there now mm. that are putting their best foot forward in the way that they didn't previously. Yeah, and I, I know as um, a school leader, we've, we've recently reframed sports at school to be sports and recreation, and we've got skateboarding and roller skating and a whole lot of um, activities Activities as well, so I, I imagine the the attention is being pulled in different directions to maybe other social sporting events as well. Yeah, and that's got to be something to be celebrated. Mm, surely, absolutely, right? like you know, any any way that you're active is the right way to be, right? And, mm. and that's also like I think you know, there's part of it where it's like, okay, yeah, you might not be hitting what those numbers were before, but is that necessarily a bad thing when it comes to you know the boys and the men? Maybe they're finding their way to the sport that actually is the best suit for them, rather than rather than something they've been peer pressured into playing. And yeah. ultimately, if the overall numbers of you know, of girls, boys, whoever being active is on an upward trajectory, then that's got to be a good thing. Ian, did you play rugby at school? Uh, yes, not well. Yes, in fact, um, in one year, um, I was the best player playing halfback. It was for the Johnsonville Midget Seas. Um, <laughs> I never quite made the transition to All Blacks, uh, but I played excellently at college as well. Um, I, I was thinking, Alice, as you were talking, and as an aside, you're the, you're the kind of stat- statistician that I quite like. Um, but I was thinking of uh, when you were talking about the uh, 40% to 20%, um, maybe take a leaf out of Helen Clark, whose mantra on politics was uh, under promise, over deliver. And uh, maybe the rugby union should have said, we're aiming for 10% and then you get 20%. But 20% even on its own still to me sounds you know, pretty good. Um, there was just a bit of over-promising, I suspect. I was just wondering, though, about on the male side of things, that, that the, I, my understanding is that there's been a gradual decline for a long time in uh, boys and men, or boys in particular, playing rugby um, compared with soccer. 
And a lot of that, I suspect, goes back from that decline from perhaps as far back as the 1981 Springbok tour and the divisiveness and controversy associated with that. Um, but I also remember, and I know that boys playing soccer have outnumbered um, play, those playing rugby for quite some time, but I can also recall um, one Colin Mead saying a very long time ago that he uh, would always encourage uh, boys... Uh, to play soccer to start with uh, rather than rugby. You'd always like to see them playing rugby, but start with soccer first. Um, throw and... the ball to Alice, Ian. Throw the ball to Alice. <laughs> Let Alice respond because I don't want these pips to take us off topic. Right, OK. But I love what you're saying. I, 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 Alice, I, catch I, the ball, babe. I can. I, hey, look, I can come up with a perfect segue, which is I am the, um, the Colin Meads example in that I played football first as a young one and then transitioned to rugby and when I found rugby that was it for me mm. um, and, and I think you know look picking up on the trends around the you know men's and boys in the game and, and what position that held yeah I think look the one part is competition so you know when you're going up against basketball you, you know football whatever it is they've always been the minnow in terms of having to be a very you know uh, having to go out and recruit by you know the nature of being the minority sport, so they've always had to do that. So they're a bit further along on what those plans are and what works, which we probably could look to copy and paste if we were um, New Zealand rugby. The other part, though, around I guess just a um, there is a part of it where a lot of it is, has stayed quite stale and it stayed that way for quite a long time. And the, and then there's also the impacts of professionalism. So there hasn't really been a space to just like have fun playing mm. rugby if you're a boy or a man, right? Like you, you now when you're 16, you're signed up to a super rugby contract. And if you're 17 and you haven't, you're a failure. How mm. ridiculous is that? Where's the participation and the good time attached to that? And, you know, I would say that I'm um, putting a challenge back too around club numbers for men. I think part of that too, is, look, prior to professionalism, there was a lot more kind of local engagement from businesses that would employ the young men that played at their local clubs, which meant that, you know, if you were injured and couldn't turn up at work on Monday, all good Bob's got you. Whereas, <laughs> you know, today, these guys, I like, you know, look, I live and play and, and coach in Wainu Omata. A number of our, um, our you know, boys in our clubs are tradies. And when it comes to that, it's like, you know what, if you're having to weigh it up, it gets to a point where, hey, I've got to prioritise my income, I've got to do that for my spa. No, can't necessarily be being a club hero on the weekend if boss isn't too happy about that on Monday. Alice Sofa, thank you very much. Rugby, staunch rugby advocate, Alice Sofa, right there. We're coming up to seven minutes to five. We have a few minutes now. Thank you so much for your feedback this afternoon. My daughter has gone to Aussie. As the first part of their OE, whether that ends up being permanent or not remains to be seen. I think it's time for leaders to stand up and say, please stay, your country needs you. On the topic of loneliness, loneliness goes deeper than creating spaces for people to connect. Smaller supported groups could help. I never talked to people in a library. Unmotivated, depressed people won't go to night classes, for example. Poverty, mental health, family dynamics and learned behaviours Role models for self-esteem probably very relevant and I think increase in sole parent families with a lack of strong male role models. Okay, there we go. That was quite a deep sharing and I appreciate that because I did ask for it. And just over a week, Santa Claus is coming to a parade near you. (laughs) 
It's an extra special event in Auckland this year. They're celebrating 90 years. Can you imagine the floats at 1930? Pam Glazer has been organising the Auckland Farmers Centre Parade for 30 years. Hi, Pam. Hello. What have I you got planned? There. You weren't there 90 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't. <laughs> We're not going to get stuck on the numbers. What have you got planned to mark ninety years? Well, you know, these days kids want to see what they see on television or on online. So we've got Elf on the Shelf, which is we're really excited about. You all familiar with that little story? I the, am. We are. Ian, are you, you familiar are? with Elf on the Shelf? <laughs> Vaguely. Vaguely. Ian, stay with the programme. Good on you. Keep I'm going. Still here. Keep I'm going, still Pam. Here. Well done, well done, Ian. I don't want to lose you. Pam, keep going. So, so Elf gets placed in all various places around the house, you know, fun places. And he's mean he watches over the kiddies before Christmas Day to make sure they're not naughty. And then he rewards them. So we've got Elf in the Santa Parade for the first time, which is very exciting. It's very exciting, and I do need to ask you this. You may or may not be able to answer it, but we do need to ask how hard it is to get hold of Santa at this time to make sure he's there on time. <laughs> Congestion yeah, charges. It's very, cha- it's very challenging. Yeah, it's but very challenging. Yeah, we've got a very nice sleigh that he rides in, so he's, he turns up, yeah. And also the reindeers go and get him, so we're good. Ian, have you made a Christmas parade float before? What would you want on it if you had a chance to choose? Oh, gosh. No, well, the first question is no. Um, oh, look, I'd put a Luddite on top, I think, given what I spoke about earlier, or a group exactly. of Luddites. Exactly. With Elf, I'd suggest, Pam, if we could make Elf available, an Elf on the Luddite shelf. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I will look into it. We'll look into it. Claire, have yeah, you we, been to a Santa parade? I, I have, I have. And I have to admit, it's the one time where I get really excited about marching bands. You know, there's oh. nothing that beats a bit of a marching band or a, you know, or an orchestral group that come in down and they're all in, all in it together. I think it's fantastic. Are there marching bands this year, Pam? Yes, I so agree with you. Um, there's nothing like a good brass band and we've got lots of them in the parade and one Guga music they dress up and they're just amazing they surprise us every year they're either kiwi fruits or kiwis Excellent. or little penguins <laughs> little penguins <laughs> could you ask for yeah and now we also we put a sound on most of our floats because we've got so many amazing dance groups that dance around the floats so so much noise bleed and just fabulous yeah. I've got one final question for you, Pam, before those pips get us again. What kind of turnout are you hoping for this year? We usually get over 100,000 people at the parade, Woo! but bearing in mind we've had some lean years with COVID. And also last year it bucketed down, but we still had a very, very good turnout. So, yeah, I think people are going to really come and support it this year. It's 90 years they, some of them haven't been for a while, and we're putting on a great show for them. 
You are indeed. Pam, thank you so much. Can I quickly retrieve, my, my, in, my, retrieve my tarnished reputation on these matters? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, look, I, first of all, I love going to James Smith's portray, uh, um, things and um, parades in Wellington many, many years ago as a kid. Me too. The, other, the, the one I went to, sorry, the last Christmas thing I went to of that sort of nature was on much lower scale. It was at Paikakariki, population of about 1,200, and it was a sole performance by a volunteer fire brigade who did it well. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, it's so good. And let's just have a wee shout-out to all the Santa Parade organisers who are busy right now around the country and also just trying to get in their last-minute requests and making sure that Santa can be there on time. All the best for you, Pam. Oh, Pam's headed off. Thank you so much, Claire Amos and Ian Powell, for taking me through my first panel today. (laughs) It's been harrowing, but I've been delighted to have you buckled in next to me. Sally Ward, producer, thank you very, very much. Blair Stagpole and Sam Smale. Blair here in the Auckland studio, engineer, and Sam in Wellington. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint next. Manuele Weekend, Tofasui Fu.